right? The Lord. So this week, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 9, and if you remember, we've had to maneuver a little bit because we've had some PG-13 moments in 1 Corinthians, especially chapter 6, and a little bit in 7. So we're in chapter 9 today, and we're going to look specifically at verses 19 through 27, and I want to give a little bit of context so you can know what's going on in chapter 9. By the way, I love this stuff, the power of the Word of God. If we will spend a little bit of time in it each day, there is something for us. Is it work? Yes. Is it discipline? Yes. We're going to talk about that. But the Word of God coming to us, washing over us, renewing our minds. And there's a word for us today in chapter 9. What Paul is doing here, and I know it's difficult to remember week to week, but what Paul is doing, he's overall, he's talking to people in the city of Corinth, and he's teaching them how to be Holy Spirit-empowered people in their crazy city. It's Neo-Babylon. Corinth, we've talked about it. It's all things off there. I mean, it is a little bit Los Angeles, a little bit New York, a little bit of Las Vegas. So that's what he's doing in these 16 chapters. And in chapter 9, what he continually has to do is remind them of the fact that the Lord has sent him as an apostle with the gospel, with the apostolic message. And he keeps saying, you guys are just trapped in many things here, and so I want you to follow my example. And so in this chapter in particular, he's talking about how absolutely free he is and all Christians, and yet he's willing to forego some of his freedom for the sake of the church. So that's what he's doing in chapter 9, and he begins, you can, if you want to look at it on your phone or in, in a Bible there, you can see Paul is explaining that all of this flows from seeing Jesus himself. And at verse 2, he's saying to the church, the seal of his apostleship is their, their faith, that Paul has come into this deep, dark place and a sign that he is an apostle, in fact, sent by Jesus, is them. The church at Corinth is the seal of his apostleship. This is really interesting. Look at verse 3. And again, we're going to focus on 19 and following, but I want to give a little bit of context here. Paul says at verse 3 that he had the right, actually, to get married and take a Christian wife with him in his itinerant ministry, like other apostles did. But he said he was foregoing that. And then he gives other examples of his rights in four and following. He gives several pictures. He talks about soldiers. When they go to battle, they have their expenses paid. They have rights. A vineyard planter actually has the rights to pluck grapes off and eat the grapes. He says that a shepherd or herder can actually take milk. And yet he says in all of these things, I am doing this out of sheer love for God and love for you. I'm not taking anything from you. I'm not requesting or requiring. I am here out of God's generosity to serve you, to bring the gospel without any strings attached. So do you see what he's doing here? This is how he's framing this chapter. As an apostle with rights, he's foregoing them. So let's look at 19 through 27. And what we're looking at today in these verses here is that Paul is doing everything in his life and ministry for the Lord Jesus first and for his gospel. 
So let's read this, and what we're going to look at today is just a few characteristics. This is pretty personal. Paul is letting you in on some of the secrets of how he brought the gospel to the church at Corinth and in other places. So we're going to see four of them in particular, but let's read 19 through 27 first. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 27, Paul says this, For though I am free with respect to all, which he's been explaining, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more for them, more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. Then at verse 21, to those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Though I am not freed from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. We'll look at this in a few minutes. So that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I might share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race, the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or crown, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. So the first thing that Paul says about being all for Jesus and the gospel is that he's servant-hearted. You see it there at verse 19. He uses some radical language. It's rather startling for us. He says, I'm free absolutely free from the law. I'm free from obligation. I'm not charging you anything. I'm free from all people. But what's he say? I've made myself a slave to all. And if you remember, at Corinth, social status was everything for these people. They loved places of honor. They loved their freedom. They loved their wealth. And Paul comes in and disrupts all of that. And he says, I'm a doulos. I'm a doulos which is a Greek word for slave. He said, I operate as a slave among you. Where do you think he got this? This wasn't his idea, was it? The Lord Jesus was his example. We've looked at this passage before, but in John 13, Jesus says, I am a slave sent by the Father to wash feet. And he says in John 13, listen to what he says to his disciples there. John 13, 14, he says, So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So Paul has learned how to be a doulos, a servant, a slave, from the Lord Jesus himself. Powerful image here. And so Paul is giving them this mindset. And he, if you remember, Esther preached a few months ago from Philippians 2 about Paul talking uh, in greater detail about the servant mindset that Christ had, that though he was equal with God, he took the form of a servant and came to give his life. 
And because he did that, what happened? He was given the name above all names. So Paul is saying servant-heartedness is a huge part of being all for Jesus and his gospel. So I was looking at this passage this week. I remembered a lady that I met 30 years ago at a camp in Tennessee. Some of us used to go. I think, Brad, you went to Precept Ministries Camp in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I remember I met this family there, and one of the groundskeepers and his wife were deeply spiritual people. I was going there to study the Bible and hear from this lady that was known for Bible teaching, Kay Arthur, and I met the lady who actually washed the toilets around the camp, and her name was Carol. And I, every time she would talk, she would serve fresh bread, but then if you went to Carol's house to be with her and hear her talk, it was like the Lord himself speaking oftentimes. And I learned something at age 17 and 18 about being a doulos, a servant. And this lady found more joy. She would tell me, Brock, learn to clean toilets. And I would say, what do you mean? And she said, I literally mean that, learn to clean toilets. So at your house, start cleaning toilets. And then symbolically look for toilets to clean in other places in secret where no one else sees, learn to clean the commodes. And while you're doing it, practice the presence of God. And I said, what? At 17 years old, and she gave me some books and started teaching me about practicing the presence of God no matter where you are. And so this lady marked my life over 30 years ago, clean the toilets, and while you do it, commune with the Lord. Talk to him. Say, Lord, you're the servant. I'm here with you. This is something you would do. I'm practicing this in your presence. So Paul talks about being servant-hearted. A second thing, look at verses 20 through 22 as Paul is talking here about all for Jesus and his gospel. He says something that could make him sound like a chameleon, right? 9, 20 through 22, he's talking about these different types of people that he goes to, and look at them. There's Jews, there's those under the law, there's those outside the law, and then he talks about the weak. And so Paul is showing us the second thing that he does when he brings the gospel. He's always adaptable. He's always looking for creative ways to find common ground with the people that he's bringing the gospel to, and he did this in Corinth. And Paul, when you read his letters, you see that, again, he's following Jesus in this. Jesus was a rabbi. He was supposed to be devoted to holiness and keeping the law and these things. And Jesus was also known at the same time as a friend of what? Friend of sinners. Matthew 11 talks about this. So, again, Paul is watching the Lord Jesus do it. And Jesus, the holiest human being to ever live, who happened to be a rabbi, who was under the law, and yet he would always reach out and touch people on the margins. Rabbis weren't supposed to touch lepers. Jesus did. Rabbis weren't supposed to be around prostitutes and allow them to come into their presence. Jesus allowed it because he brought holiness to the marginalized. He learned how to bring the gospel of the kingdom to people who needed it. So when Paul is talking about this, he's basically clicking through all the different people that he would have brought the gospel to. 
to the Jews. And we know that Paul was a Jew. So Paul, what do you mean by you became as a Jew? Paul, on the road to Emmaus in Acts 9, became a new person. His whole identity was rearranged. Before, he was a Jew of all Jews. He was a rabbi. He was a Hebrew. He had all the accolades. And yet, when he met the Lord Jesus, he said, I'm a new person. I'm a spiritual Jew now. And so what he's saying here is when he brought the gospel and we see his method, he would come to a town and he would go to the synagogue and he would identify and connect with the Jews first in order to bring the gospel. You know that. What we also don't know oftentimes is that when he did that, he opened himself up to the authorities of the synagogue and if they disagreed with his message, he could be punished and disciplined. So how do you think it went over as he's going to the synagogue and saying, I've encountered the resurrected Messiah? It didn't go well. But Paul said, I still go to the Jews as a Jew, bringing the gospel at all costs. And there were times also where Paul knows that he is freed from the law and its obligations. So he doesn't have to keep the Sabbath. He doesn't have to practice the various things that he did before because he's been absolutely set free. He doesn't have to follow the rules and regulations. But what does he say here? He says at verse 21, he's under a new law, isn't he? Whose law is it? Look at verse 21. So he's not saying, hey, I'm a a libertine here. There is no law and I'm lawless. Whose law is he under now? Christ's law. What in the world does that mean? I think one thing it means is the law fulfilled in the spirit of love. So Paul now will fulfill the Old Testament commandments, but he's doing it under Christ's law, fulfilled in love. Paul also says here that he goes and brings the gospel he identifies with those outside the law. It's the the Gentiles the non-Jews. And then this last one, this is interesting. Who's the fourth group that Paul brings the gospel to as he's adaptable? Look here at the text. Maybe you can look up on the slide. What's it say? To the weak. To the weak. I became weak. Again, the language here is important. Paul is saying to the weak in Corinth, those that are overlooked, those who don't have status, Those who are not prestigious, I become like them. And the Corinthians would have said, Paul, why do you do that? Again, in the spirit of Jesus, as a servant, a slave of Christ, he's adapting, he's finding common ground to bring the gospel. I want to make a note here, okay? Some people might say this is nitpicky, but really this is at the heart of what we're talking about today. Paul was devoted to Jesus first and then the gospel. Let that sink in for a moment. This is all for Jesus and then the gospel. Paul is gospel obsessed. He loves the gospel. The good news that God sent his son, Jesus, that he died, he was raised from the dead, and that he wants to bring you into his kingdom. Paul was obsessed with that. But Paul was all about Jesus. Some of you are saying, what's the difference? Sometimes we do the same thing with the Bible. If the gospel is the message about 
Jesus, we love the gospel, right? We love the Bible. But who do they point to? A living person, the Lord Jesus. Are you with me in that? So Paul is first and foremost for the Lord Jesus and then the gospel. He began this chapter by saying, I saw and encountered the Lord Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus. He didn't say, I saw and encountered the gospel. I saw and encountered pages of a writing. No, he said, I encountered the living person of Jesus. So I want us to think about that as much as we love the gospel and we're focused on it and obsessed with it. The gospel is about a person. Do you see that nuance that I'm making there? So Jesus first and then his gospel. The word of God points to the living person of God. As I was thinking about this adaptability this week, I thought of this guy named Matteo Ricci, and he was one of the first missionaries from the Western world to go into China. I've put a picture up here of Matteo. I want to tell you about him because he learned from this passage right here what he implemented in his mission, his pioneer missionary work to China. And look at the dates there. So that's Matteo on the left there in the red, and he's actually meeting with a Chinese leader, a dignitary. And Matteo, this is someone uh, we studied in All Saints last year. We studied his life. Um, Matteo went to China, and he went in the late 1500s, and he learned Chinese. He went and learned Chinese, learned the culture, learned the Confucian philosophy, and in a sense, he became Chinese so that he could bring the gospel. He was an Italian Jesuit priest, and yet he found a way to meet the Chinese people 500 years ago and become Chinese in order to bring them the gospel. No one else had ever done that. So this, this guy is significant in the history of missions, in the history of taking the gospel to other countries. Listen to what this guy, he was the first Westerner invited into Beijing, into the Forbidden City. He was so beloved and so honoring and respectful of the Chinese people that they said, come into the Forbidden City and we'll meet with you. Now what he did, which is fascinating, he was a scientist. So he used his scientific knowledge to help the Chinese people create maps and understand solar eclipses and some of these things. So he used his gifts, his skill set in order to connect with them. And Matteo Ricci loved this passage. He ended up, catch this, 500 years ago, he started a church in Beijing. Mind-boggling. Most of us don't know some of these stories, but Ricci established a church by finding common ground with the Chinese and in many ways what God is doing, the revival that's breaking out in China right now, the seeds were planted by Matteo Ricci, adapting himself, adapting the gospel for the Chinese people. Beautiful story. The third thing that we learn from Paul here in verse 23, this is where some of his heart really comes through. Not only is he servant-hearted and adaptable, but Paul is passionate. Look at what he says. I'm going to read this again because it's really the heart 
of this section here. Paul says, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel so that I may share in its blessings. So this is Paul's consuming singular passion. He's seen the Lord Jesus, he says in verse one, and then he says, I do all of this. I'm willing to put myself in the way of martyrdom and persecution by the Jews who don't want my message. I'm willing to put up with your nonsense, Corinthians. I'm willing to be under the boot and the threat of the Roman Empire at all times. Why? For the gospel of Jesus. I'm in love with him. I've seen him. And this lets us know, friends, how we can become unstoppable. Is anyone interested in tapping into being unstoppable this morning? I certainly want to be unstoppable. I don't want to be heavy and dire, but I think in the days ahead, church, Jordan and I were talking about this this week. I think culturally, if you open your eyes and see, I think we have to brace for some opposition in the coming days. We really do. And I'm not being negative or, oh, you're not very optimistic. The Lord always wins. But I do think that we have to brace and prepare for some resistance in the coming days. And Paul is giving us a window right here into that, that you can be so gripped with the person of Jesus and the good news about him and his kingdom that you're unstoppable. And when Paul talks about the gospel, of course, he's talking about the content of the gospel. But you know, there's something more about the gospel. Romans 1.16, you can look that up, you can write it down. Paul gives a window into this. He's not just completely doing all of this just for the sake of the content of the gospel. But listen to what Paul says in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. What is it? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. So what is the gospel? The power of God. Let's say that. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. So when Paul says this here, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel the power of God that's at work in Corinth and through the Roman Empire and over the last 2,000 years, this is what he's passionate about. Do you see that? So yes, he's passionate about what the gospel reveals, but he's passionate about seeing the power of God unleashed wherever he goes. In the darkest places, the gospel comes and takes root and it's the power of God at work to save people. And this reorients Paul's entire life. He is consumed with passion for the Lord Jesus and his gospel. And somehow the, he gets to share in its blessings. And the Greek word actually means to partner with, to partake of. So as he is spreading the gospel and planting churches, he actually gets to participate in the blessings of the gospel. I have a friend in Turkey who was touched by this same power as a college student. Here he is in Istanbul, Turkey. It is 98% Muslim, still is. Not a lot of gospel activity there. And about 25 years ago, when he was in college, a restless soul 
battling depression, purposelessness, searching his own Islamic faith, and he could not find God. He could not find truth, and someone gave him a Bible, and he began to read it secretly. And what was in that Bible revealed Jesus to him. And Jesus began to enter into his life. He began to hear from the living word himself. And he was converted through reading the scriptures. And he began to find answers that he had been searching for. His restless soul found a home in the Lord. How do you think his family felt about that? They'd never had anyone become a Christian. So he was instantly cut out of his family. He came to them, he said, I'm a Jesus follower, and they said, you're no longer one of us. And there were times when the messaging was, we're gonna put a bounty on your head. And so this guy was facing not only being cut out of his family, but potentially being killed, but he tapped into what Paul is talking about here. He experienced the saving power of God, it got in his bloodstream, and he became unstoppable. And to this day, over 30 years later, he is a church planter all through Turkey. And so he's planting churches. He's actually been so effective and so anointed and gifted that he's now over in Europe planting churches and raising up leaders in some of the Muslim areas where Turks have come in. So he tapped into this passion. The final thing that Paul talks about in verses 24 through 27, as he shares his passion for Jesus and his gospel, Paul says in these verses here, 24 through 27, that he's disciplined and determined. Look at what he points out here. In his mind, he would have the Olympic games of his area. We learned this word several weeks ago, Isthmian games. So the games that were happening in Corinth every couple of years, and Paul would, he observed this in 51 AD, Paul was there to see the Olympic games. And so as he's talking to the church, he's saying, I want you to be disciplined and determined just like those athletes who came and performed the games in your town. And he mentions some of them. He talks about runners. He talks about boxers. And he talks about athletes in particular. And he knew what these athletes had to do in order to participate in the games. These athletes actually had to give a public confession that for 10 months prior to the games, they would forego certain meat, they would forego wine, and they would forego sexual activity. They were so devoted to the games, to winning the race, to boxing, to all of these different exercises that they would give things up. And Paul says, church at Corinth, I want you to be that disciplined and determined. If people are this crazy about winning a wreath, how should you be? And so Paul is trying to get them to be disciplined, to practice prayer, to get into the scriptures, to cultivate growth on a daily basis. It's interesting, though. There are some verses here that have been greatly misunderstood. It's pretty easy to to see there, isn't it? Verse 27, what does Paul say? I punish my body and enslave it. What? 
do you mean by that, Paul? Well, we can't tear this out of its context. Paul is talking about what? Running and boxing. Usually, what is your goal as a boxer with your opponent? Take it? Ariella is saying, bring it. You know, that's right. So Paul is using this and he's turning this word picture against his own sinful desires, his own sinful ways. And he's saying, I actually am not out to punch someone else. I'm actually out to subdue and win. And I will do whatever it takes to keep this this body with its sinful impulses in check. Now, could someone take a passage like this and abuse it and twist it and misunderstand it? And have they in the history of the church? Yes. Some of you know what this means, right? I'm not throwing something over my shoulders, but that self-flagellation, you know, you take the whip and you beat your body and subdue it. That is not what Paul is talking about. He couldn't view that because he was a Jew and the body was good, right? What did he say in 1 Corinthians 6? What do we do with our bodies? What do you do in it? You glorify God in your body. So Paul is not saying beat it up, mutilate it spiritually. Now he's saying use your body in the correct way. Make sense? So Paul is inviting the church into being disciplined and determined. And a commentator, N.T. Wright, says this. The gospel will demand that you give up some of your rights and freedoms, even if this feels like going into hard athletic training. That's the essence of what Paul is saying here. Do you think this was drudgery for him? I've just got to subdue my body. I've got to fight the impulses towards sin. Do you think it was like that for him? There may have been moments, but this guy was in love. He was in love. The love of the Father had touched him. He was in love with the person of Jesus. And so for him to conquer his sinful desires, he did it in love. And I think it's an example for us, an invitation for us to glorify God in our bodies. I think we have to be wise about it. On this note, some of you I've been hearing are talking about fasting, prayer and fasting. And why do we fast? Well, Jesus did. Paul did, the early church did, and I say, fast according to grace. Fast according to grace and wisdom, but be wise. Be wise in it. There's a, an experienced faster in the history of the church named John Cashin. He was one of the Desert Fathers, and he wrote in the fourth century, and he talked about moderate fasting. Here, this brother had fasted for over 50 years of his life. And he knew what it was like to fast regularly for seven days, 21 days, 40 days. And looking back toward the end of his life, he said, the best, most effective, fruitful fast would be to skip a few meals once a week. So I want to make sure if we're fasting, if you're entering this athletic contest, passion for Jesus, passion for his gospel, house cleaning, that we're wise and that moderation is key in this. Do you hear the spirit of what this passage is inviting us into? I am all for it. Do athletic training, go for it, throw yourself into it, but be wise and moderate. 
This is something I'm trying to get back in the game some, and so I'm skipping a meal or two. And if the Lord calls you into a more extended fast, make sure that you've got some pastoral input, you've got some colleagues who are helping you do that. So Paul here is talking about all for Jesus and his gospel, and he's talked about being servant-hearted, adaptable, passionate, and disciplined and determined. So Lord, we ask you, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's example. We thank you for the example of the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would stir up a fresh fire in us today. That you would impart something to us through the power of your word. That we would be all for Jesus and his gospel. Lord, I pray that you would make us unstoppable, that we would be unstoppable people in the love of God, filled with your grace and mercy. We pray in your name, Jesus.